Hi everyone, welcome to SAMA, a program which invites an expert each week to discuss a topic from their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Dr. Stephen Hussey to tell us how to study evolution to gain better health. Specifically, we're going to talk about cardiovascular health. Heart disease is the leading cause of death all around the world. People who have diabetes have a higher chance of developing heart disease. How does heart disease develop? How can it affect our health? And what can we do to reduce the risk of getting heart disease? Everything you want to know will be explained to you within the next hour. Dr. Stephen Hussey, MSDC, is a chiropractor and functional medicine practitioner. He attained both his doctorate of chiropractic and masters in human nutrition and functional medicine from the University of Western States of Portland, Oregon. Dr. Stephen has done deep research on the root causes of cardiovascular disease and how it can prevent them. He helps people create better performing hearts. Stephen, welcome to SAMA. It's fantastic to have you with us. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. So, um, how did you first get interested in heart health? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was largely inspired from from my own personal health journey. Yes, uh, I was. I had a lot of uh, chronic conditions and ailments as a child, um, starting from you know probably when I was two years old. Yes, uh, and I had like asthma, and I had inflammatory uh, bowel disease, and I had. Uh, terrible allergies. Uh, and I used to break out in hives all over my body. Uh, nobody could tell me why. And I ultimately ended up with the autoimmune disease type 1 diabetes. Gosh. My body attacked its own pancreas. And so it attacked the cells that make insulin. And so now I'm type 1 diabetic. Um, and so, you know, as I, my parents and I were going to doctors and everything and, and relying on them to, to help me manage these conditions and these things. Um, I, you know, came across the information that being diabetic, you know, gave you a two to four uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease uh, right. as you got older. Mm. Uh, and I asked doctors why that is. And they said, well, um, it's because the higher blood sugars over time cause vascular damage. Um, and so we start to see things like, you know, your eyes will go bad or your kidneys will go bad or you'll, right. you know, you have bad circulation and that kind of stuff, maybe to amputations, those types of things. And so I thought, you know, wow, yeah, you know, this is, I'm predisposed to this. I need to learn everything I can yes. about, uh, about cardiovascular disease, uh, whether that's of the heart or of the, the vessels that you mm. know, bring blood to and from the heart. Right. Uh, so I'd learn how to protect them. And so that's kind of been my passion. And so, uh, through all my education, um, I've always, you know, my ears always perked up whenever I heard anything about cardiovascular disease. And, uh, and I just kind of done my own research and just, you know, searched everywhere I could for, for what truly causes this condition. And then how do we best approach it? You've had a very unlucky childhood. So this would have been quite yeah. a few years before you decided to do formal medical studies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this started when I was two years old, but it really, oh, gosh. it got to be at its worst probably when I was nine or 10 years old. Um, so yeah, it's been a while. So I guess when you did start, you'll be very, very focused. Yeah. You have a clear yeah. target. That's right. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's not like I had a terrible childhood or anything. I mean, I had a normal, pretty normal childhood. I was I wasn't like sick all the time. I wasn't out of school all the time, but there was days when I, you know, had to miss school and days when I just felt absolutely terrible. Yes. Um, and, and the approach that I was given was, you know, more medications and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was, it was helping me manage the condition, but wasn't telling me why it was there or, um, or really you know, approaching the, the underlying cause of what was going on. Um, and so, so I, that kind of stuff I had to figure out on my own. Uh, so yeah right now you just touched on drugs there now drugs are basically designed to control conditions aren't they they don't really sort of go to the root cause as you've just mentioned yeah the, I'd, say, uh, I'd say that you know mask symptoms uh, masks. not even really hide hide disease but just mask symptoms yeah it's great so they can fester inside you can continue to develop and grow Exactly. Yeah. They're not really 
get into the underlying cause of what's going on. Like for me, it was just something was causing all this inflammation in my body to attack itself. So rather than address what was causing the inflammation, which was poor diet and toxin exposure and, and various other things, um, I was mainly given, you know, inflammation suppressing medications. I was eventually yes. put on prednisone at one point mm. because they didn't know what else to do besides put me on a steroid um, to control that inflammation. And for anybody who's you know, diabetic and ever been on, a, on prednisone knows that it's absolutely, um, uh, it's super hard to control blood sugars on a steroid like that. Yes. Um, and so it was, it was difficult for me, but yeah, that was their only approach. They had, they had medications to offer me and when those didn't work, they would just try other ones. Um, and they, they had no, I was never told change your diet. I was never told manage your stress. I was never told, um, you know, be conscious of the toxins you're exposed to. Um, it was always the medications and which was, you know, I had good intention doctors that were trying to do the best they could, but that's how they were trained. That's the only tool they had. And if you don't understand what creates health in a human um, or why their health may break down, then you really can't help people to the best of your, that you should be able to. Okay. So you mentioned diet, toxins, and medication. Why is diet so important? Uh, I think that, I mean, if we look at all the things that humans can do to protect their health, I think that diet is the biggest lever. Um, and, and because that's something you do, you know, some people three times a day, I only do it one or two times a day, but you know, for some people it's, it's three times a day where you're, you're either creating disease, um, or you're fighting disease, you know? And so I think that it's, it's the most important thing because it's, it's what gives our body the information. Uh, it's what okay. gives our genes information Yes. Um, because our genes are not set in stone. Uh, and so we, we have this set of genes and we all have those genes that aren't going to change, mm -hmm. but how they express themselves is going to be dependent on the environment that we put them in. Uh, so if, you know, if we, uh, eat very poor foods or we eat very healthy foods, that's information for our body to tell it how to express the genes, how to express itself. If we expose ourselves to a bunch of toxins. That's different information than living in this cleanest lifestyle we can live in. And so, um, since food is something that we do and everybody has to do every single day, then giving your body the best information possible to for your genes to express themselves uh, in the, the healthiest way, uh, I think is, is the most important. And so that's, that's why it's so important. And I think that, you know, if we talk about things evolutionarily, if we look at the diet that humans evolved to eat over millions of years, you know, the diet that literally, you know, brought us from, um, Ashlopis to modern day homo sapiens that like that's the diet we need to start mimicking and that's unfortunately the diet that we've strayed from uh, largely and that's what's driving I think uh, a large part of what's driving our chronic disease epidemic right now you developed your um, immune condition very young when you weren't in control of your diet but that would have been presumably at a time where there weren't so many toxins around you, you know, as a child, parents are very cautious about what foods they give their children. You wouldn't have been on the trash food that is, that's available now, surely. So, uh, I mean, uh, to the contrary, I, I was definitely eating, you know, the standard American diet. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Very, very processed carbohydrates, very toxic food. Yes. Um, I mean, my parents didn't know any better. Uh, they didn't, I mean, and unfortunately, you know, no matter what we do, we're going to be exposed to toxins. Even when I was two years old in 1988, you know, like we're going to be exposed to toxins no matter what you do. So it's about being um, aware of those toxin exposures and limiting them to the best of our ability without freaking out about the ones you can't because that's just not healthy either. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, even if even the most well-intentioned and knowledgeable parent, is the, the child's still going to have some exposures. That's just the reality of the world we live in. Um, right. That's why it's so important to limit the ones that that um, that we know about to the best of our ability. And my parents didn't know that. I mean, I was also fully vaccinated, uh, which there's a slew of toxins that come with that. Um, the the food I was eating was toxic. The the I mean, I'm sure there's different aspects of the environment that I was in that was toxic. I mean, there's plastic, there's heavy metals, there's all kinds of things that can disrupt our physiology. And you combine all those things together, and that's not necessarily a recipe for disease depending on how your genes react to them right 
So what does a what does your diet look like now? What does what sort of foods do you eat? Uh, at this point, I am I'm 100% carnivore. Um, so I eat all animal foods, um, and that's the diet that I've come to based on uh, all my research and how my body responds. So, um, I mean, I've I've made you know lots of diet changes um, mm. when I started seeing that you know, the way I live my life actually had an impact on my ability to manage these conditions, which nobody right. ever told me, you know. Yeah. But so it's been kind of this this uh, this not guessing game, but this. Um, I guess this hit or miss kind of approach, you know, seeing, trying this diet stuff and see what happened. And, and this hundred percent animal based diet is, is what has given me the best health that I've ever experienced. Um, so that's what I'm eating now. Um, all animal foods. Gosh, <laughs> you know, you're talking to a vegetarian, don't you? <laughs> no, I don't. I didn't know that. I mean, not yeah. I mean which I have nothing against, you know. Oh, I know. I know. So, everyone, everyone to their own, you know. Um, now, that's right. <laughs> we're, um, the seminars, we're going to um, drill down on the cardiovascular side of, um, of the health side. Now, everyone knows the heart pumps blood around the body. Is there much more that the role, is, does the heart play a larger role than that? Is there more to it than just simply pumping blood? Um, I actually, I actually don't believe the heart pumps blood. I think it does a little bit of pumping, but it's not, it's not the mover of the blood in our cardiovascular system. Um, the, uh, the heart, it functions more like a hydraulic ram, which is a type of pump. Uh, and if people, you know, when it's hard to explain without having visuals, so if people want to know what a hydraulic ram is and how it works. Um, you can just YouTube a video of how a hydraulic ram works and it'll explain it to you. But um, the, uh, I mean, if you think about the size of the heart and the amount of work that it would have to create to pump blood throughout the entire body, it's, it's pretty much impossible. There's no way an organ that size uh, could do that. And they've actually done studies that show that if we look at the heart as a true pressure propulsion pump, uh, which is what we think that it is, where it sucks blood in from one side and pumps it out the other, if you look at it that way, it's about anywhere from 15 to 30% efficient at doing that, which is not very good. Um, and so there's no way that evolution would have, have created something that inefficient, unless that's not what the heart's meant to do. Um, so the way that the, the blood, the main way that the blood gets moved throughout the body is it has to do with water. And our blood is almost 50% water. And so when our body has the right amount of energy exposed to it, and this is energy that we would get from being in contact with the earth or exposure to sunlight, or even being in contact with humans, we get energy from them. Uh, when, our, when water holds that energy, um, which it, it has been shown that it can through the work of Dr. Gerald Pollack at University of Washington, um, when it holds energy, it starts to form what's called fourth phase water or exclusion zone water, which just is it's just the way that the water structures itself. And it forms that next to the lining of the blood vessels. Um, and when it does this, it creates an energy gradient because the, the structured water is more negative and then what's left in the middle is more positive and that creates an energy gradient that actually moves blood. Um, and, and they've shown this, uh, that this happens uh, in, in uh, the cardiovascular system. And, and so that's what's driving the blood flow um, in the arteries and the veins. But the heart does do a little bit of pumping Obviously, um, through the chambers of the heart, it's what gets things moving and there's contraction. But the main role of the heart, I think there's two things. One is that it maintains the pressure in the system. So if we started to go running, um, our body would need lots of blood into our muscles, right? Mm -hmm. And so all the blood would go rushing to the muscles, uh, to the arterial side of things. And um, if, if the heart wasn't there right in the middle between the, um, the arteries and the veins, and all that blood would be rushing there and we get this imbalance in the system and the venous side would collapse and that would not be so good. And so the heart there is kind of like this damming up organ uh, that kind of stops the flow of blood so it's not too fast to the, to the arteries getting that, that collapse in the system. So it maintains the pressure in the system. Um, but it has to pump faster, obviously, when we're running um, to, to get that blood moving faster, but it kind of keeps it balanced a little bit. The second role of the heart is that it's a vortex. So if you look at the way the, the muscles of the heart are, are um, oriented and how they're put together, when they contract, they spin. 
uh, and they and they um, they kind of vortex or swirl the blood as it's uh, as it's being pushed out of the little um, the um, the ventricles and the and the atrium. And uh, the reason it's doing that is because um, spiraling or vortexing water is another way that um, increases the energy of the water. And so by increasing the energy, that helps us form that structured water on the lining of the blood vessels, which then creates blood flow. So in a way, the heart's responsible for the blood flow, but not because it's directly pumping the blood, but because it's uh, creating, it's, it's energizing the water. And so um, Dr. Pollock in his lab has shown that vortexing the water, uh, which there's water in our blood, vortexing the water in the presence of oxygen is what energizes the water enough so that it can form the structured water. So I think it's no mistake that, you know, we get this uh, vortexing of the blood and then it goes to the lungs and gets oxygen and then comes straight back to the heart to get vortexed again. I think that it's set up that way pretty, pretty beautifully. Um, so that's what I think that the role of, of the heart is. There's just, there's, it's not just a, a pumper of blood. It does a little pumping, but mostly it's a vortex and it maintains the pressure in the system. It may be a concept which mainstream medicine may take a while to accept because the energizing water is, a, is, a, um, is currently poo-pooed by um, scientists. So, um, yeah. yeah, it may take a while. But it, it, yeah. um, to think of the pump, the heart as a rudimentary pump, just forcing water through hose. I mean, you consider how long the hose is. <laughs> Well, there's really interesting evidence. Like if you look at a, um, a, an echocardiogram, you know, and you see like the aorta sitting there, it's like this arch thing that the you know, blood's coming out of the um, heart into the aorta. Like yes. if I forcefully, like if I had a, a hose that was curled like that and I turned the hose on and the water forcefully came out, it would straighten out, right? Mm -hmm. But what they actually see is that when we get, when, when, the, when the heart pumps, pumps, you know, quote unquote, uh, the blood, the, the aorta actually curls up, like there's a suction effect, like it's coming out, like being sucked out of the heart, um, which is which is interesting, mm. uh, which would kind of refute the theory that there's this forceful pumping of blood out of the heart. It would when you when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. The the, uh, the lymphatic system does that work in a similar similar manner? This is what uh, Carmela Walker is asking. Um, yeah, I would say so. I mean, given that uh, lymphatic fluid is also largely water and right. that the lining of the lymphatic vessels are, are a hydrophilic surface, which is what, I mean, what is needed for that water to form, that structured water to form, then okay. yes, I'd say that, um, especially since the lymphatic system has no pump, it has no, you know, you know quote unquote right, pump like the heart, you know, mm -hmm. so that's, that's how it's moving. But you also have to ask yourself, how does, how does water get from the roots of trees up to the leaves, you know? This is the same mechanism that's being created. Well, that's obvious. That's elves pushing it up, isn't that? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, what happens when things go wrong? What can go wrong? It sounds like a beautiful system. The heart's maintaining pressure. The blood vessels are actually allowing the blood to flow through them and uh, return back to the heart. What can possibly go wrong? Well, I think, um, I think that if, you know, when we remove ourselves from the natural environment that we evolved in, we like, we, we evolved to have that, that radiant energy of some sort, whether it's from the earth or the sun or each other or vortexing of some sort, like we, we evolved to have that exposure to that radiant, um, uh, energy. And when we don't have that, cause we remove ourselves from our natural environment mm -hmm. and we stay inside too much, or we live in a city where there's like no natural environment or anything like that. Uh, or we shut ourselves off from other people and there's no contact with others, um, then, then what can happen is that the heart can be forced um, to be more of a pump than it's designed to be. And it has to create more of that flow. Um, and maybe it's not so much, it, it's not really making up for it. It's just that the, the water and the blood is not moving through things smoothly because we don't have that energy applied to the system. And so the heart is working very hard. Um, and when that happens, we start to see an expansion uh, of the muscles um, in the in the heart. A, because I think it's it's having to work harder. I think it's having to burn more carbohydrates for fuel, which it doesn't like to do. Mm. Um, the heart specifically doesn't like to do. Um, and you know, research there's tons of research out there that shows that the preferred fuel source of a failing heart, uh, someone with heart failure, is fatty acids and ketones. 
Okay. Um, and um, and then uh, and also it's it's just it since the waters and the blood's not moving through the system like it's supposed to, it starts to pool up in the heart, and that can you know expand it a little bit. And so that's what we see in heart failure. We see um, uh, we see the heart go from this spiral-like looking thing, kind of like shaped like a football, like an American football to uh to like a basketball or a soccer ball it starts to look the round which is not the normal shape of the heart Mm -hmm. um so that's like the classic presentation or classic thing we see in in uh, dilated cardiomyopathy or or, you know which one aspect of heart failure um we also in heart failure we start to see edema or swelling Uh, we see pooling of water in our feet or things like that and again that makes total sense when you think about it in this way because if if the the blood is not able to move itself on its own by being energized enough, then then it starts to pool in areas um, as we start to get this like pitting edema kind of thing, and that's what we see with people with heart failure. So, you know, if if the if the heart is having to be more of a pump or having to uh, where the water is not moving through the heart and the cardiovascular system like it's supposed to, um, we start to see issues because this this hydraulic system is just this hemodynamic system is just not functioning like it was designed. Right. Right, right. And so when the heart swells up, it doesn't pump so efficiently, right? Or pump, okay? <laughs> it doesn't provide uh, uh, yeah. enough pressure for the blood to then flow through your vessels. I guess some cells in your body will become damaged because they don't have the oxygen that they require. But yeah. can you, um, so what is a heart attack? What people, term a heart attack yeah so i mean the what's usually thought of what is a heart attack is is there's some type of blockage that happens that uh in a in a coronary artery in an artery that supplies the muscles of the heart Um, and so that could be a it could be a slow um progression of you know atherosclerosis that builds up in the artery that eventually blocks it too much Mm -hmm. um or it could be uh, that there's so much inflammation that our, like a rupture happens and a clot forms and that clot flows down to a smaller artery and it blocks off a certain area. And that, that deprives the, the, um, the heart muscle of oxygen and therefore we get damage or we get uh, dying tissue there. But I've come across some research that suggests that that's, that's not really the case. I mean, definitely that can happen like a, yes. a, a clot forming, you know, a inflammation happening that a clot can form, yes. but there's a large percentage of heart attacks that happen without clots. Um, and this is seen clinically. I've, I've spoken to many cardiologists about this uh, and they'll usually say like, Oh, well the, the clot dissolved before we got in there to see it. Um, but there was a, there was a pathologist in Italy named Giorgio Baraldi um, who spent his life studying, um, heart attacks in the coronary arteries and vessels. And he did autopsies on, you know, probably thousands of, of people throughout his career. And he looked at their hearts and he looked at people who didn't have heart attacks, looked at people who had heart attacks um, and died from the heart attack, people who, who just died of accidents and he wanted to look at their heart. And, uh-huh. and he found that in, in some people who uh, had no medical history of heart disease um, and no complaints at all, um, who, who died of just an accident, um, he did autopsies on their heart and they had like severe blockages of their arteries, yet they had no clinical symptoms. Uh, and then he also found people who died of heart attacks who some of them, a small percentage of them did have a clot that was significant and in the same area as the heart attack, but lots of them had no clot whatsoever. Uh, lots of them had, uh, or some of them had, um, a clot in an area <clears throat> that was totally different from where the heart attack happened. Um, some of them had a clot that, uh, was, was present and sort of in the area where the heart attack happened, but, uh, it was, it was too old. Like it had been there forever and this heart attack just happened to this person. Um, so, so there was this things that just weren't adding up. So then he also did these studies where he found that, um, he did this, what they call the plastic cast studies where he, he took these autopsied hearts and he, he pumped them full of a neoprene or latex material. Uh, and he filled them up full of that. And then he, he waited for that material to harden and he dissolved away the rest of the tissue with hydrochloric acid. And he was left with this perfect cast of the arterial system of the heart. Right. Uh, and what he found was, and I've seen this kind of stuff like at the body world exhibits that they have around, you know, um, they, they do this with, with different organs and different animals and things. Um, 
But what he found that, that anywhere that there was a 70% or more blockage of an artery, that the heart had built a collateral system of arteries around it. And he said anywhere from 16 to 33 different arteries built around it, depending on the size and the extent of the blockage. And that was not just in some places. That was everywhere that there was a more than a 30% blockage. The body had bypassed it itself. I know. Yeah. And so, and, and most cardiologists will acknowledge the presence of these collateral arteries um, or just collateral arteries in general, like that are not main arteries. Um, but I don't think they really acknowledge the fact that, that of Beraldi's work that they were bypassing these. Um, and so I've had cardiologists tell me that, yeah, but it takes forever for those collaterals to form. And so there's no way that if a blockage formed that they could form itself in time. And that could be the case if there was a, a rupture um, that forms a plaque and that kind of thing. But if it's this right. atherosclerosis buildup, mm-hmm. I have studies that show that, that these, um, these collateral arteries can form with, I have one that shows they can form within seven days and one that shows they can, they can form within four. Um, so all that to say that this whole theory of these blockages driving this heart attack mechanism may happen sometimes, but it definitely doesn't explain uh, all the heart attacks that we see. So, Yes. No, 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 you go. This is the story. I don't want to interrupt. <laughs> yeah. So that was a big lead into what I think does drive these heart attacks where we don't see a blockage. And to me, it's happening because of three things. Uh, one it's happening. Uh, well, these, these, these three imbalances happen that when they come together and the stars kind of align, we get, we get a heart attack and they are that we're, we're not very well fat adapted, meaning we're not adapted to burning, um, ketone. We're not metabolically flexible. You don't have to be burning ketones all the time, but at least be metabolically flexible, which the majority of people are not because um, they're too reliant on carbohydrates. Um, the second one is, um, is oxidative stress. So when your body has too many toxins or it burns too many carbohydrates for fuel, we end up with this state of what's called oxidative stress where these molecules can cause damage in our body. Um, and the, the problem with that is that that depletes nitric oxide. Uh, in our system. So remember that. And then the third one is uh, an imbalance in our autonomic nervous system. And our autonomic nervous system is just the system that our body has that's interpreting our environment and determining whether we're in a safe or threatening environment and giving your body the correct signals it needs to have the appropriate response. We need to run away and get away from this threat or are we okay? We can relax, we can have a meal, we can sleep, whatever. Um, And so we have this imbalance in the autonomic nervous system. We kind of get stuck in that that stress response because we have all these unnatural stressors of our, our uh, modern world, what I would call unnatural stressors um, compared to our evolved physiology. And so those three things, if we get those imbalances, which are very common in the modern world, they can set things up to where we get this heart attack. And this is kind of the series of events that happens. So we have somebody who's not well fat adapted and they have high levels of oxidative stress and that's depleting nitric oxide. And then we have this imbalanced stress response where they're in this fight or flight state. They're in a stress state all the time. Um, and this is very interesting because there are studies that show that heart attacks are more common on stressful days of the year. They're more common. They're actually most common on Christmas Eve, which is sad, but, um, but also Mondays and um, major sporting events or summer holiday, like these times, I guess, tend to stress people out. And so, yes. When we get this stressful event that happens, we're already imbalanced in our stress response, and then we get this, this major stressful event. It could be loss of a loved one or just major stress at work. And what that does is it normally what should happen is that our stress response signal, whether it's non-stress or a stress state, should get communicated to the heart and other organs, but to the heart. And if we get that stress response, we get a surge in what's called sympathetic signaling to the heart. And normally, we should also get a lesser uh, surge of parasympathetic activity, which is the non-stress state, and that keeps it balanced. Um, and that's how it's supposed to happen. However, for that parasympathetic signal to get transpired to the heart cells, it needs nitric oxide to do that. And so if we have this high oxidative stress or we have damage to the lining of our arteries, which is where the nitric oxide is made, uh, we can't make nitric oxide, we get depleted nitric oxide. And so then we get this surge in stress response without the surge or the lesser surge of the non-stress response because the nitric oxide doesn't allow it to get in. And that's a problem because when we get that huge surge in stress response, um, that causes physiologic changes within the heart tissue. 
And we see the same type of changes in skeletal muscle. When we go for a run, that's a very stressful thing for our body. And it's a good stress. You know, we want to do that to challenge things. Um, but when that happens, we start burning more glucose. We start using glycogen stores in our muscles to create the energy needed uh, to get us through that run. And so what happens from that is when we start burning glucose, we get a buildup of lactic acid and hydrogen ions in our muscles. And that's what creates the muscle burn that we feel when we go for a run. Um, and luckily, if the burn gets too bad, we can just stop running. Uh, and that lactic acid is pumped out within the hour. Um, but if, if that happens in the heart, we get this surge of sympathetic activity and the heart has physiologically forced to start burning more glucose than it wants to. Um, which the heart is very, very um, keen on burning fatty acids and, and ketones. Mm -hmm. But if it burns more glucose, we get the buildup of lactic acid in the heart. And that's the characteristic angina that we feel. We feel this burning uh, pain in the heart. And, you know, we can stop running but uh, for our skeletal muscles, but the heart can't stop, you know, contracting. Um, and so what happens is we get this continual buildup of lactic acid. Uh, and that does two things. One, it interferes with um, the calcium absorption into the cardiac cells. Uh, and without calcium, uh, muscle can't contract. So we get a decrease, decreased contractility there. And then the other thing it does is it creates a swelling because this lactic acid is building up in there. And so normally the pressure gradient is, is higher going from the blood vessels to the, to the cells uh, so that it can get into the cells. But now with the swelling, the pressure is greater and it's, put, it's forcing the the blood out and the blood can't get in and so that creates hypoxia or lack of oxygen and we get tissue death um, and so that's the the other curious thing that Baraldi found is that sometimes he did find a clot in the area where the heart attacks were happening but there was evidence that it was it, it occurred after the heart attack um, meaning that that you know this swelling and everything kind of created this pressure that dislodged a plaque that was already there and that broke off afterwards. Um, and so um, that's, that's, I think, what's, what's driving a large percentage of heart attacks. I don't know exactly what percentage. I've never been able to find the exact, or I found a lot of statistics, but they're so all over the place, you know. Um, nobody really knows exactly how many occur without blockages, um, but there's a large percentage that occur without them. And wow. that's, I think, the mechanism that does it. Okay. The precursors to heart attacks, which you've described now, they sound gradual, whereas heart attacks are, are an incident. It, 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 it's, an, it's a very sudden shock. So um, how, how would that, how would your process, to, you know, how could that possibly create something which happens instantaneously rather than something which is a progression of illness? To, to uh, well, because because those things are building up over time, and yes. as they get worse and worse, they they result in an event like this. Okay, I understand. Um, it's not yeah yeah these things these things take time to develop. These imbalances take time yes. to develop, or they or they take time to get uh, bad enough that they cause this. Plus, I also think that you know it's 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 like I said, the stars kind of align. Like these three things have to have to happen in a way. Like we could get a normal stress response. But let's say we don't have enough oxidative stress, we still have nitric oxide, that's fine. You know, we're okay. still getting the balanced signal. Or let's say we get a, a major stress response um, and we get the proper signal or we get the improper signal. However, we're very well fat adapted. And so the, the heart cells are just less likely to start burning glucose more than ketones because we're, we're adapted to burning fatty acids and ketones. So that's helpful as well. So there's, there's various things, but you know, if all three of these imbalance happen, imbalances happen, um, to an extent that we're setting ourselves up for this, then then that could that could uh, that could predispose us to these things. And it's just very curious that we found research that shows that the older you get, the harder it is, or the the more likely it is for your heart to burn glucose instead of ketones for whatever reason. That's just what we observed. Um, we found that as you age, you get higher levels of oxidative stress um, for whatever reason. That's just Hold what we on. observed. <laughs> And yeah, and and we've also we've also seen that that heart rate variability, which is the number one measure of our stress response, uh, declines as we age. Right. Um, and that's so that's that's a few things that are just, aging just in general um, can predispose us to those things. 
um, along with all the other things that we, we've talked about, toxins and poor diet and all that stuff. You've mentioned nitrous oxide a few times. What is the role of nitric oxide? Uh, the main role, or the one that everybody says the main role is, is that it dilates the blood vessels. Okay. Um, so it means like it expands the blood vessels, which, which is why they try and use things to, to treat blood pressure and that kind of stuff. Um, or, or they use like nitroglycerin tablets uh, for people with um, advanced atherosclerosis in their quarter, coronary arteries to, to widen up the vessels to, to blood flow. But like I mentioned, the other role of nitric oxide is that it's essential for getting that non-stress signal to go into the cells. Um, so if it's, if it's not there, it can't get in there. So it's essential for having a balanced uh, autonomic nervous system signal into the cells. So it's a central role, isn't it? It's a very, very important compound. Yeah, very important. And it's created by the body? It's, it's created in the endothelial cells, which are the cells that line the arteries and the, and the veins. Are there foods that we can eat to um, allow a greater production of nitrous oxide or to, you know, the correct balance of nitrous oxide? Yeah, they actually, I mean, they, um, they uh, won the Nobel Prize for discovering that L-arginine um, stimulated, uh, L-arginine is an amino acid. Uh, that stimulated nitric oxide production. Um, so people try and sell supplements of this L-arginine stuff. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think the best source of it is, is animal protein to get lots of L-arginine. Um, and there's other foods too. Like they, they, I guess they've shown that, that beets will do it um, and things like that. But there's just downsides to beets. So I, I don't think we need them. I think that arginine is, is uh, probably the best. And, and uh, evolutionarily, what evolution... Uh, appropriate way that that we we uh, stimulate the production of arginine, but really it's just healthy lining of our arteries. If you have healthy lining of your arteries, then you're making nitric oxide just fine. And so okay. that's the trick: is maintaining the health of the arteries. Right. I guess uh, genetics plays a role as well. Choosing your parents carefully to make sure you don't have, you aren't susceptible to having um, heart conditions. Yeah, I mean genetics plays somewhat of a role. Uh, but there's a very new science of epigenetics, meaning yes. that you you are born with the genes that you have and you cannot change that. However, you can influence the way those genes are expressed. Right. So I tell people that it's kind of like it's kind of like poker. You know, I, you're dealt your set of cards, and there's nothing you can do about that set of cards as far as what those cards are. But you could be dealt, you know, nothing, no pairs, no anything like that, and you could still win the hand if you play your cards right, if you play the hand correctly, if you bluff, right? Now, if you've got a terrible hand, it's much, you have to work harder to win that hand. You have to be really good at bluffing, right? <laughs> so people with a, with a bad set of genes have to work really hard. Right. Um, but, they, but they can achieve higher levels of health. They can influence their genes. Where yeah. someone who's got a royal straight flush, you know, they can, they can probably smoke and drink and play the hand terribly and still win you know, and still come out with good health. And that's just the diversity of the genes that we've created uh, in our modern world. Uh, but that's kind of how, that's how I think about epigenetics is that kind of poker equation where just because you're dealt a certain set of hands doesn't mean you're going to lose the hand or a certain set of cards. You're not going to lose the hand. It just depends on how well you play the hand and depending on how, how, um, how good the hand is you're dealt will depend or will tell you how hard you have to work. Um, so some people, like I said, you know, like me, I, I was dealt, you know, I'd say a poor hand. Um, and I've had to work hard to get rid of all those ailments that I had. And I have, aside from type 1 diabetes. But I said to work harder than, you know, those people that smoke and drink and don't change to diet and live to their 100. You know, we all know those people. <laughs> we hate them, don't we? <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're annoying, but they've got that royal straight flush. So, Right. Um. I'm still struggling with the link between heart disease and diabetes. Mm. Now, uh, diabetes, in, in, in your case, was uh, an autoimmune con uh, condition that where your own body was attacking the pancreas cells. But how does, where does the heart come in there? Um, so that's because I've, no matter what I do, no matter how hard I work, and I work very hard and I have you know, very well-controlled type 1 diabetes, but yes. no matter how hard I work, my blood sugars will be higher than the average person's. 
Okay. Um, I'll never have the control that an average person has. Um, and so with higher blood sugars, what that does is, is higher glucose in the blood will um, what's called glycosylate things. So it'll glycosylate the red blood cells. Okay. It'll cause damage to it, basically. Yes. yes. Um, it basically cause, causes what's called advanced glycation in products, which just means molecules damaged by too much sugar. Um, and those things act as free radicals in the body. And free okay. radicals are, are, I tell people that they're like the Looney Tunes Tasmanian devil. They're running around wreaking havoc. You know, yeah. that's what they do. Mm. So the more of those we have, the more damage we're going to cause. And since things get transported in blood, then blood vessels usually take the brunt of that damage. Okay. Um, and so that's where cardiovascular disease comes in when we have higher blood sugars over, over time. Um, so, yeah. I understand. Thank you for putting it in simple terms. <laughs> now, yeah. I'm loath I'm loathed to ask this question because, as you know, I'm a vegetarian. And uh, mm -hmm. why is eating meat so good? Is it good for just you, for your body type, or do you consider a uh, carnivorous diet beneficial for most people? I, I definitely consider an animal animal based nutrition to be the the optimal human diet. I don't think that everyone has to be 100% carnivore. Obviously, that's just silly. Um, I think that I think that for some people, eliminating all plants can be the difference between health and disease. Um, and I I I think that when we look at um, humans and where we came from evolutionarily and anthropologically. Mm. Uh, meat and animal foods is what made us humans it's, it's it's what literally took us from being um you know the more ape-like creatures that we were um you know the australopiths um which um you know we didn't we didn't come from apes we we came from a common ancestor a long time ago um but we we were more ape-like when we were australopiths and when we started eating meat about 2.5 to 1.8 million years ago we saw these um, this huge evidence in the archaeological evidence that showed us we were eating meat. That's when we became human. That's when we started uh, increasing in stature. That's when our brains started getting bigger. Uh, that's when we started walking upright. Like that's when these changes happened. Like this is the diet that made us human. Um, and and there's there's studies that show that when you look at the the stable isotopes of nitrogen in the bones of, of the early modern humans and the Neanderthals um, that they that they showed that we were eating that those those people were eating um a diet that was more, almost more carnivorous than known carnivores of the time um like other saber-toothed tigers and things like that yeah. so that's the diet that that literally made us human and so to in my thinking to 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 blame an ancient food like that on a modern disease something that's only happened in the last you know at most 200 years and really the only last 50 years in the epidemic we've seen it makes no sense to be blaming saturated fat and meat for heart disease when we've been doing that for literally millions of years and heart disease in the epidemic that we know it uh, has only been around for you know 50 to 70 years now there was evidence of it back in ancient egypt but people in ancient egypt it's well known that they ate lots of grains and very little animal products um and so so you know there's signs of heart disease within civilization, um, but it's only been this huge problem, this epidemic in the last 50 to 70 years. So there's no way it can be saturated fat and, and, and meat uh, that's causing that. And so that's that side of things. But then the other side of things is, is, is that our, our, our body, our, our digestive system is set up for eating animal foods. It's not really set up for uh, plants. Um, so, so if we look at, um, um, if we compare ourselves to our, some of our closest ancestors, like the chimps and the gorillas and bonobos and things like that, they have very small, um, uh, small intestines and very large, large intestines. And that's because um, they need to eat a lot of plants and they need to ferment that, those plants to actually turn them into short chain fatty acids. So and this is what a cow does too, it does this with grass. And so in a way, these animals are eating a high fat diet, but they're just very good at fermenting those foods and creating fat from them. Whereas we don't have that. We have a very long, small intestine, which is where we absorb foods. And we have a very small 
large intestine. Um, and so we're not really designed for that fermentation. We can't really do that. We need foods that are very bioavailable. The nutrients are right there and that's, that's animal foods. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the adaptations I think that, that humans did, but the other thing was cooking. That's something that we have uniquely developed, um, that really gave us an advantage. Uh, so we could, we could break down, um, certain foods, but also, um, our stomach acidity is, I mean, if you look at our stomach acidity, it's like 1.5 and, and, you know, most herbivores are somewhere up in like five, six, seven, that area. Uh, and most omnivores are around like the three, four area carnivores, like known carnivores, like lions and dogs and things like that. Um, like wolves and things, they're like two and we're 1.5. Like our stomach acidity is so low. Like we're on the same level as other carnivores. The reason being is that we evolved eating raw meat and we needed that high stomach acidity to kill bacteria that may be there. Um, and so that's, that's the diet that, that made us human. <laughs> a lot of points you've thrown in there. I've got a theory that wearing gloves brings on cold weather. And it might be a similar thing with, this, um, with the diet when you're saying when we're eating meat, then our brains got larger. But many other animals also eat meat and their brains aren't as large as ours. Yeah. Well, you could also say that um, the, the hunting uh, is also what expanded our brain. There's a, there's a prominent paleoanthropologist named Miki Bendor who talks a lot about this. Um, and he, he's saying that the, um, you know, the, the coming together in social networks and then the strategizing of hunting uh, where you had to anticipate where your prey was going to be. You had to interpret signals because hunting is, is difficult, especially when there's this, you know, this just, you know, open expanse and, and we were learning how to do it. And that also drove the evolution of, of our, um, of our, our brain. We had to think a lot more where, um, where farming, it doesn't really take that much thought. You just put a seed in the ground and you water it and it doesn't really take complex thinking like that. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's another reason. Um, but we also see that, you know, we were evolving to have these digestive systems that, um, that, uh, that were, that could absorb things very readily as long as they were bioavailable, like in animal foods. And so we were doing that for millions of years. And then all of a sudden we started cooking it, like maybe 80,000 years ago, we started, we you know, started using fire and cooking it and that made it even more bioavailable. And that's when we really saw an explosion of our brain size is when we started cooking meat. Um, that was, that was the big thing. Okay, not cooking vegetables, I mean, because <laughs> vegetables will be cooked as well. But um, I, I, I take your points. Now, we've talked about the problem. I'd like to talk about the solution. Now, you talked before about the modern American diet. What's wrong with the modern American diet? I mean, it's tasty, it's convenient. We've got to go into a supermarket and hunt it down. So it's still got the hunting strategy. What's, what's so wrong about the American diet or other Western country diets for that matter? Um, what's wrong with it is it's pretty nutrient void. Uh, okay. It really has no um, of the nutrients, that, none of the nutrients that we need. Uh, so especially when we're talking about, so if we look at, you know, early 1900s to probably, you know, mid 1900s, mm. what we see is we see the introduction of um, uh, vegetable oils or you know processed seed oils. Yeah, and I think I think that was one of the big drivers of heart disease. That's when we started seeing heart disease. Um, right. Is when that happened. And those are those are pretty much uh, terrible calories from fat. And that's the type of fat that I would never suggest anybody eat. Um, again, a, a plant source of fat, not a yes. good idea. Yes. Um, um, because they're easily oxidized and they have no nutrients. They're just an empty calorie. Okay. And so that's the same thing when we get um, uh, processed flour or processed sugar. Right. Um, we, we process things down to the, the just, a, a, um, you know, just an empty calorie. Uh, and that's not okay um, because our body needs nutrients. And there's 90 essential yep. things that our body needs. Um, there's essential um, vitamins, essential minerals, 
essential um, fatty acids, essential amino acids. No such thing mm. as an essential carbohydrate, though. So <laughs> I don't think we need those. I think they can be advantageous at times, but we don't need them okay. um, for, for physiology. Sure. Our, um, and so we need to get those essential things. And if you look at the, um, what most people are eating, like what's, if you go to like the traditional supermarket or whatever, um, and you look at what the majority of is it's in there, it's all just these processed foods that are full of, um, empty calories and very void of nutrients. Um, and that's the problem. Uh, that's, that's the major problem. I mean, I could get nitpicky about different types of plants and different types of animal foods that are problematic like processed meats are not a bad idea and and um, and various plants have different toxins that are made by the plant that are problematic um, but the the main issue is that we've just over processed and taken everything good out of our food um, and so if the body doesn't have what it needs to maintain its health then i wouldn't expect it to be healthy like you know when people get sick we get these diseases it, these are not, these are not, uh, um, these are not the problem. They're the symptoms of us being removed from our natural environment. And that's, right. that's food, you know, yes. that's not being in our natural world. That's being exposed to many toxins. That's unnatural stresses. And so right. that's, I mean, I can, I consider all that the, the standard American diet, all those things, not just food. Um, okay. That's the standard American way of life. Okay. Can you describe for us, Either the meal you've just had or the meal you're about to have, what is a typical dinner? For me? For you. I, mean, I can tell you what I had today. Like today I just had one meal. Um and I had I had three eggs. Um I had a, a small, like, you know, four, five ounce steak, and then I had bone broth. Um, which um with, I make sure I have like good marrow bones in there so there's plenty of good uh marrow uh, for the fat. Mm-hmm. Um that that's what I had today. Um, but at other times I'll have, um, sometimes I'll have bacon, sometimes I'll have sardines. Um, sometimes I'll have, um, what else do I do? I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll not just have the steak. I'll, or I'll, I'll switch it up and have like some chicken or pork or something like that. But I usually stick to red meat. Okay. Um, yeah, but you know, just variations of those things. But I mean, I'm so satiated with this diet and I'm running off of fats and ketones that I really only need to eat once a day. And maybe twice if I just, if I feel like it, you know, but I eat within a, a six hour window and then I'm fasting the rest of the time. Right. And you don't feel hungry while you're fasting? No. I mean, maybe the few hours before it's time to eat again, but no, I mean, it took me a while to get there. I mean, when I, when I first was going from a carbohydrate based metabolism mm-hmm. to a, a fat or ketone based metabolism, like, it, it took me a while to get there, but yeah, like, it's, it's pretty amazing how food doesn't run my day anymore. You know, I get, I get everything I need and I'm getting it in the most bioavailable form, which is an animal food. I can absorb it very, very well. Um, and, and as long as I'm, I'm sure to do things like bone broth, so I'm getting all the minerals I need as well Mm -hmm. and do things like, like sea salt, which is, is very important for replacing the, the minerals and electrolytes. Then yeah, I I'm doing amazing. It's the best I've ever felt in my life. What oils do you use in your cooking if you do frying? Oils? I don't, I don't use any oils. I'll use fat, though. I'll use, like, beef tallow. Okay. Um, sometimes I use uh, grass-fed butter, uh, but I cook it at very, you know, at, at the lowest temperature I can, trying not to damage things, you know, um, because the, the plant oils are very easily damaged. Yes. Um, um, whereas, the like, the beef tallow and, uh, and the butter are, are less so as you cook them at, at lower temperatures. You said before that some plants have got natural toxins and you said you, you weren't going to just touch on them because you're going to give other examples. Can you touch on a few, please? I'm very interested. Yeah, for sure. So the most famous plant toxin is gluten. Everybody knows that one. Um, and gluten is, is a lectin. Um, so it's just in one category. Uh, it's just one of plant toxins in a category called lectins. And lectins are found in high amounts in grains, all grains, uh, whether it's wheat, barley, rye, oats rice whatever um and uh and also found in higher amounts in uh, legumes so beans with lentils peas Mm. beans those types of things um and they're also found in fairly high amounts in um uh, nightshade vegetables so we're talking peppers and eggplants and tomatoes and potatoes 
those are pretty high in lectins. Um, there's, uh, there's the phytic acids, which phytic acids are notorious for stealing our minerals. Um, and phytic acid are found in things like the grains again, um, but also the, the beans. Um, corn is another big one that has phytic acid. Uh, and there's actually a really interesting study showing that um, that when you ate, uh, they did, uh, someone ate oysters, and oysters have a lot of zinc in them. And so they were measuring the zinc absorption uh, from when someone ate oysters. And when they ate the, the oysters by themselves, they got like 90% zinc absorption. When they ate it with corn, they got like, you know, less than 30. Um, okay. So this phytic acid definitely binds minerals so that you can absorb them. That's the problem. Wow. Um, then there's, uh, there's um, oxalates. Oxalates are like these crystalline-like structures um, that, uh, that are found in high, I mean, they're found in a lot of different foods, but they're found in high amounts in uh, things like spinach and kale uh, and sweet potatoes and chocolate and almonds, things like that. They're, they're in really high amounts there. And, and some people with really bad reactions to oxalates um, and you get them out of their diet and it's just, you feel amazing. Some people, oh. some people handle them okay, and that's yeah. fine. But I can't say that they will forever, you know. It, yeah. Um, but there's also, um, I don't know. There's, there's lots of different toxins. There's tannins, which are found in a lot of teas. Um, it's a toxin. There's tannins are supposed to be good, aren't they? Tannins? No, no. Um, they're 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 bad, and and the, the, all these things are just. I mean, you got to think about it evolutionarily. Like no no living thing on the planet wants to be a meal for another living thing, you know? And so all, every living thing has a defense mechanism. Our best defense mechanism is our brain. You know, we can outthink anything pretty much and we still lose sometimes. Um, but uh, an animal, its defense mechanism is to run away, mm -hmm. um, you know, or fight you off if it has the ability to fight you off, you know? Mm -hmm. A plant can't do that. So it has to defend itself somehow. And that's what these plant toxins are. Uh, there are plant defense mechanisms, and there's not a plant on this earth that doesn't have one, doesn't have a defense mechanism. And lots of them were evolved not to defend from us, really, but, um, but to defend like insects and things. But our cellular structure is pretty similar to insects, and so it affects us as well. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not exactly the same, but it's, it's biosimilar, you know, right. um, and it affects us as well. And so we just have to think about those things. And so it's interesting to me that, that, you know, humans have developed things or developed techniques they can use to make plants more tolerable to us. Like we, we sprout things that are inedible unless we sprout them or we soak beans because they're inedible until after we do that and we can't, you know, or we cook them for a long time, you know, uh, or uh, what do we do? We, um, we ferment things and that, that can decrease the amount of toxins. That's what these, these techniques are. They're decreasing the amount of plant toxins there so that, that we can tolerate them, but they don't eliminate plant toxins completely. They just make it so that we can, we can tolerate them. And so I think that humans have this very unique um, uh, and very advantageous ability to eat plants and burn carbohydrates if we need to. Um, and that gave us a survival advantage. That's what, that's what helped us survive and grow in big numbers. Um, because I think that we killed off our food supply, which is the megafauna that used to be around when we were evolving to be human. And, and we, we were so successful at hunting them that we killed them off. And then we were forced to evolve to do this other thing, which was to rely on these plants. And that's when agriculture started. Um, and so when I look back at that and think today, well, I don't, you know, I have access to whatever food I want. Why don't I eat uh, a food that most of my genes are, are um, more evolved to handle? Yes, I can handle some, some plant foods and some carbohydrate foods, which all carbohydrates come from plants. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean I should rely on them completely because I think there are downsides to having a carbohydrate-based metabolism and exposing ourselves to plant toxins. Um, and I think there's lots of downsides and a lot of it just hasn't been researched yet. Wow. Was as an angler, I hadn't really thought about it. Now plants provide a package of food for both us and the animals. It's called fruit. Um, I guess fruit wouldn't have toxins that you're, you've, you're suggesting. Uh, 
No, fruit does. I mean, glucose, I would consider, or fructose, I mean, I would consider a toxin. Uh, fructose is terribly harmful uh, to our liver. Um, I, I think that high fructose corn syrup and the amounts that we get that uh, fructose in mm -hmm. are, are terrible for us. And so that's not to say that's how much you're getting from a fruit, but we bred fruit to be sweeter and have higher amounts of fructose. And like it's, this is not the fruit that we would have been eating, you know, a million years ago. You know, this is, this is way different, way higher levels of sugar. And we have access to it year round, which is not evolutionarily appropriate. Like we would have had fruit once a year. And so that's how we evolved. We evolved to, to have some, some sugar one time a year. And we were, we would store that sugar because the only time you store fat is when you spike insulin. And the only thing that will spike insulin is sugar. Um, and so you store that, that extra um, glucose as fat so that you have it for the winter when it's not around, or maybe you weren't successful hunting that week. And so you had a little extra to keep you going, you know, that's just how our physiology evolved. But now we just eat fruit all year round in these unnatural amounts and it's much bigger and, and sweeter. So I would consider uh, fruit a toxin, but there's actually a paper by Bruce Ames. Um, it's called plant pesticides, 99.9% .9 natural, meaning made by the plant itself. Not that we've sprayed on it. Right. Um, and it, he lists, he lists a lot of uh, the compounds and specific fruits that are, are, are known to be toxic. Gosh. Okay. Well, I'm getting close to the end of the summer. I'd like to leave on a positive note. We've just talked about toxins and plants and um, other, other things which aren't quite so good for us. Can you put a, can you put a positive spin on things? Like, is there hope? Is the, is um, the current medical establishment, are they um, accepting new ideas? These, these ideas of yours, I guess, it would have been, <clears throat> would be um, met, met with a wall of resistance, but um, are they softening up? And they, I, I'm trying to struggle to find something really positive to sort of end things on. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that the future is extremely positive because I think that for a long time, there's been this reliance on, on doctors and, and healers of any sort. Yes. Uh, for health information. And I think that, you know, with the invention of the internet, you know, you can say bad things about it, or you can say good things about it. But that has allowed for the mass spread of, of information. And I think that there is a very big waking up happening about health. And the more information that we can spread, which is what I'm trying to do is just spread information. Um, am I right? Or am I wrong? It doesn't matter. I'm just spreading information and people have to do their own health experiments. And, and that's what I think that it's empowering to people to know that they can take back control of their health. It may take some trial and error, um, but you're really not going to go wrong with trying to improve your diet, with right. um, decreasing your toxin exposure, with getting back into nature, with having loving relationships and community and these types of things. Like these are the things that, that humans need to create health. And, and, and it's just amazing that people don't have to rely on anybody to do that. They have complete control over whether or not they do that. And that's what I want. That's the message I want to spread is that, that you can create your own, you can take it back into your own hands. You just have to, um, you have to find the right guidance, find what works for you and just run with it. Fantastic. Do you have a website, Stephen, or any resource available for people, viewers who are watching this video and, and think, well, I want to learn more. Yeah, Where definitely. Um, my website is, is resourceyourhealth.com. Uh, and that's where I have, that's where I run my health coaching through and where I do my blog, which I mainly, I mainly blog about the heart. Um, and then I'm also on social media. People can find me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Um, and that's just Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. You can find me there. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on to our show. It's been fantastic talking with you what yeah you've turned a few things on their head a few a few ideas i had which were which i thought were set in stone you've now um put them to question and so yeah, it's, it's great to be here thanks thanks so much for having me i love doing these things yeah no thanks thanks once again okay and thank you viewers for watching okay thank you bye-bye bye-bye well thank thanks Stephen. once again it's, it's been it's was fantastic talking to you it was um, very pleasurable of course, I oppose vehemently what you say about the meat, but um, I understand. I understand your viewpoint, and 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 um, yeah.
Now, saber-toothed yeah. tigers never existed whilst humans were alive, but that's an, an analogy between that and other things, yeah. Um, what did you say? Oh, saber-toothed tigers were ex extinct when uh, we started walking, on, um, when we became bipedal. Oh, I mean, I, I, I mean, it was other carnivores at the time, maybe not saber-toothed yeah, tigers. Yeah, no, I, I understood that. Were, <clears throat> I understood yeah, that. Yeah, so I... Yeah, <laughs> I mean... But I mean, you also have to realize that that uh, chimps and bonobos and gorillas have been eating their plant-based diet for millions of years, and they didn't grow big brains. Um, so there must have been something that we did to grow them. Uh, and so, to me, that was a high-fat diet. Uh, and considering the fact that there's absolutely no sound evidence that high-fat and meat causes any type of disease it's all been associational evidence it's all been epidemiology then there's there's no reason not to to to, to demonize it which it has been demonized and that's yes. a shame yes. i think well it's been demonized because that's creating a market isn't it for those little round mm. yeah for the processed foods you know and that, yeah yeah. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed our talk. Thank you so much for your time. Well, you have a great evening. Of yeah, you as well. Thank you. Good talking uh, to you. Good okay, same. You. Same. Okay, you take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.